Scripture reading this morning is going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16 of Acts 21. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read these verses for us if you just want to follow along. Acts 21, beginning with verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodus, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we should lodge. Our Father and our God, we ask now for your blessing uh, to be added to the reading of your word. Give us clarity this morning as we seek to study this passage. Uh, help us to learn principles uh, that would help us and guide us in, our, in each one of our lives as we seek to follow you and obey your will for us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, today we are once again tracking with the Apostle Paul as he is on his way down uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And today's passage really is the conclusion of the third and final missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. By verse 17, Paul is going to enter into the city of Jerusalem, and within a week's time, he will be arrested. Following this arrest, Paul will be held in prison in Jerusalem for a while, and then he'll be transferred to a prison in Caesarea, where he stays locked up for a couple of years. Uh, Throughout all of this time, he stands trial before the high priest Uh, then some governors and kings, and eventually he is sent to Rome, where he will remain in prison for a few more years before ultimately he is executed. So here in Acts 21, this is really marking the end of Paul's public ministry. For years, Paul has been able to go about freely from place to place, sharing the gospel of Jesus with others. He's been free to establish churches all over Turkey and Greece, Uh, but now all of that is done. He will be held as a prisoner, standing trial before leaders, and eventually he will be killed. 
Now, none of this comes as a surprise to Paul. God had warned Paul repeatedly that this was coming if he continued on his journey to Jerusalem, that he would be arrested, that he would be uh, oppressed, uh, that imprisonment would await him. Uh, Paul said this back in our text from last week, Acts 20, verse 22. He says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul knew that this was coming. Uh, And today's text is one example of exactly what Paul mentions here, how God had been warning through the Spirit uh, that this was coming to Paul if he continued on his way to Jerusalem. We begin with verse 1 of chapter 21, which says, When we had parted from them, this is speaking of uh, Paul and Luke and, and all of those who were traveling with Paul, leaving Miletus. You remember they were talking to the Ephesian elders there. Uh, verse 1, they leave Miletus, they set sail. And it says, we came by a straight course to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, that's the island there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And so you can see on the map here the course that they took. Uh, leaving Miletus, they go to Kos, Rhodus, Patara, and then they find a ship sailing all the way down to Tyre. And so they pass by the island of Cyprus on the south uh, portion of it, and they land here in the city of Tyre in Phoenicia. And so now they're in Tyre. Verse 4 records what happens while they're there. It says, having found, uh, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So they found a group of Christians here in Tyre, and they settled in there for a week. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So once again, the Holy Spirit is sending this message to Paul, as he apparently had been doing for quite some time. Uh, Paul said this sort of thing was happening in every city as he was on his way to Jerusalem. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So uh, just so you can see this again, these are quick trips now. Uh, From Tyre, they sail over here and then down to Caesarea, so just a little bit of a trip uh, along the coast there. And then it says in in, uh, the next verse, we'll look at in a moment, that they stayed in Caesarea for many days. Uh, which I can't blame them for. If you ever get a chance to go to Caesarea, it's basically the Hawaii of Israel. Uh, Very warm. There's beach, sandy beaches everywhere, palm trees. Uh, It's a beautiful place. But aside from the weather, they had another reason to stay camped out there, and that was Philip. Uh, Philip was a very notable person in the early church. Uh, His ministry is given to us in Acts chapter 6 through 8. We learn quite a bit about Philip. Uh, Very possible, by the way, that right here, Uh, While Luke and Paul and all of them are staying at Philip's house, that's probably where Luke got all of his information uh, that he had written in the book of Acts about Philip and his ministry. Philip was one of the seven, as our text says, says, referring to the seven deacons uh, that were serving in that role in the church of Jerusalem. You remember back in Acts 6, uh, there was that issue with the widows 
uh, not being cared for, and so they appointed seven men to serve in the Church of Jerusalem as deacons. Uh, Philip was one of those seven. And here in Acts 21, he is called an evangelist. Uh, Maybe you've heard that term before. Uh, The modern-day usage of that is very different than what the Bible speaks of. Uh, Sometimes we think of an evangelist as like a traveling preacher who goes from church to church. Uh, Not really the idea in the New Testament. Uh, The word evangelist uh, means basically one who proclaims the evangel, which comes from the Greek word for gospel. And so being an evangelist is one who preaches the gospel, one who shares Christ with the lost. Uh, You may have heard of the term evangelism as meaning just sharing your faith with others. And so uh, this is what Philip did. He was very gifted at giving the gospel to the lost. I would say that that was Philip's spiritual gift. Uh, We see it even in what Luke had written previously of Philip's life and ministry. For example, back in Acts 8, we read that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits Crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so Philip comes to the city of Samaria where the gospel had not yet reached, and he preaches, and there's a great revival that takes place here. Acts 8 verse 12 says, When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so Philip was instrumental in bringing the message of Jesus to Samaria. Philip was also the one, you may remember, who brought the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Later in Acts chapter 8, uh, verse 26, an angel of the Lord says to Philip, Rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And having received those instructions, Philip obeys. Uh, He goes out to the desert, sees a chariot in the distance, and the Holy Spirit says, go run up to that chariot. And uh, and so he goes there, he hears that that the man sitting on the chariot is reading from Isaiah chapter 53, and he's very puzzled at its meaning. And so verse 35 says, when Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So again, he's sharing the gospel with this man uh, who was lost. Verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, I'm sorry, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And now you fast forward 20 years, Philip is still uh, living here at Caesarea when Paul arrives uh, on his way to Jerusalem. So this became his home. Uh, Philip bought a house here in Caesarea. He married a lady, apparently, had four daughters. And so he's raising his family here in the city of Caesarea. Uh, No doubt still carrying on the work of spreading the gospel, using his uh, gift to spread the gospel to the lost uh, as that title of evangelist indicates. So back to our text, verse 8. On the next day we departed, came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Uh, Now it doesn't tell us what they prophesied, uh, but I would imagine it's the same thing that those entire 
prophesied earlier, and the same thing as we'll see Agabus's prophecy in the next verse. I assume that they were also telling Paul through the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Uh, while we were staying for many days, verse 10 says, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Uh, Agabus had come up in the book of Acts before as well, you may remember. Uh, again, this was years prior, back in chapter 11 of Acts. We're told, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the, so the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Paul uh, would have known Agabus. They would have crossed paths there in Antioch uh, when Agabus came to the church with this prophecy about a coming famine. And here, Agabus and Paul are, are once again reunited again years later, uh, though this time under different circumstances. Agabus has a prophecy for Paul. Uh, Agabus in our text, we'll see in a moment, he uses an object lesson that may sound very strange when you first read it. Uh, he takes Paul's belt and he ties himself up with it to illustrate visually how Paul would be bound and arrested if he goes to Jerusalem. And this sort of thing is very common throughout biblical prophecy. Here's just a couple of examples of this from the Old Testament, uh, prophets who did similar things. Uh, over in 1 Kings 11, when, when God wanted to tell Jeroboam that he was about to uh, split the kingdom, the tribes of Israel, into two, uh, God tells him through this visual image. He sends the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam. And verse 30 says that Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him. And he tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, uh, Shemosh, the god of Moab and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. So basically God says, because of Israel's sin, I'm going to split the kingdom. Uh, you're going to get 10 tribes, Jeroboam, you're going to rule over them. Uh, two tribes will remain on the other side. But instead of just telling him this, uh, the prophet illustrates it by taking his coat and cutting it up into pieces, representing the tribes being split apart. Uh, again, over in Ezekiel 4, another sort of similar object lesson, God says to the prophet Ezekiel in verse 1, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you. Uh, this would be sort of like a ceiling tile that they used on their, uh, their roofs in those days. And he says, Engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. So he's, he's getting down there with his carving utensils, kind of drawing a little model replica city of Jerusalem. Uh, verse 2, put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. <clears throat> then God says to Ezekiel, uh, verse 4, Then lie on your left side 
and place the punishments of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. Uh, Can you imagine how Ezekiel felt uh, doing all of this? Uh, People are walking by, he's laying down on the ground, he's carving this little replica of the city in this uh, tile. Uh, Would have looked very strange, I imagine, to people passing by. But this is what prophets of God did all the time. God gave them these uh, visual sort of illustrations, object lessons to demonstrate things. Uh, At times, the prophets were told to act things out uh, as a warning of what was going to happen. And so what Agabus does here in chapter 21 of Acts is really not unusual uh, in terms of prophecy. It's something that's done frequently uh, in Scripture. Back to our text, verse 11 tells us that Agabus, he came and he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12, uh, when, he, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, notice there that Luke is writing and he says that he was among those who was urging Paul not to go. He said, we, we were urging him, we were begging him. So Luke was uh, on their side here, pleading with Paul to stay away from Jerusalem. Of course, they don't want to see anything bad uh, happen to him. They hear about this prophecy, and so they're begging Paul, don't go. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul remains determined to go down to Jerusalem, and the consequences of what would happen did not change his mind at all. Verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So that's the text, and now that we've worked through it, it is time for me to try to answer the question I have been studiously avoiding. Uh, Was Paul wrong here? Was Paul wrong to keep going down to Jerusalem? Uh, Just because Acts records that Paul did this uh, doesn't mean it was necessarily the right thing to do. Paul isn't Jesus. Uh, Paul is capable of of doing something uh, unwise or wrong. And so the question is, was Paul right or wrong to go to Jerusalem? And here's where I will do my best to present the evidence for both sides. It's a very tricky question, and I will leave you to make your own judgment on this. The first bit of evidence that suggests that Paul may have been right in doing this is that Paul was constrained in the spirit to go to Jerusalem in the first place. Uh, Acts 19 verse 21 says, After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. On the other hand, verse 21 could be translated constrained in his spirit. The Greek is vague enough there uh, that either one could be a correct translation. So it may not actually be telling us that the Holy Spirit was the one who led Paul to do this. Uh, For example, the MEV translates it this way, verse 21 again. After these things happened, Paul determined in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So you could understand that as the Holy Spirit led Paul to do this, or that he just decided in his own spirit that he wanted to go. So that doesn't necessarily prove either way. Uh, A similar text in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Again, 
Uh, that could be worded a little bit differently. The translation there is, is somewhat vague. Uh, it could be the compulsion of Paul's own spirit. Uh, then again, in verse 23, the ne- very next verse, after saying uh, that he's going to Jerusalem, he says, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Okay, so the other way to read this is that this was maybe just Paul's understanding, uh, and he was wrong. Paul seems to have believed that the Holy Spirit was constraining him to go to Jerusalem, and that these repeated warnings of what was awaiting him were there to prepare him for what was coming, not, not, in, not in order to discourage him from going. But maybe Paul was incorrectly interpreting things. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit really was trying to tell Paul not to go. Uh, whatever we decide at the end of the day, I think it's very clear based on uh, those couple of verses we just read that Paul was not intentionally sinning here. Uh, he believed that what he was doing was God's will in going to Jerusalem. Another argument in favor of Paul being right is that Jesus had said at Paul's conversion that he was chosen to stand before kings and to present the gospel of Jesus to them. Uh, Acts 9, verse 15, this is all the way back when Paul first becomes a Christian. The Lord says to him, go, for he is, speaking to Ananias here, go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So you might say that uh, if going to Jerusalem led to Paul standing trial before kings, which it did, then it must have been correct for Paul to do so, because that was the Lord's will right from the very beginning. On the other hand, Acts 9, this is a prediction. Uh, Jesus, of course, knows the future. He knows that this is going to take place. That doesn't mean that it was necessarily the wisest choice for Paul to go. Uh, Number three, there are some similarities between Paul and Jesus heading to Jerusalem. This is, I think, an interesting parallel Uh, Luke 9, verse 51, we're going all the way back to the ministry of Jesus when he leaves Galilee and he heads down to Jerusalem. Verse 51 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And all along this trip, Jesus knows that suffering awaits him. Uh, He sets his face to Jerusalem, knowing and predicting what would take place when he got there, that he would be arrested and eventually killed. But he goes anyway. And some people tried to dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem, just as some of the the, uh, disciples later tried to dissuade Paul. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So if you draw the parallel to Acts 21, uh, you might say that the Christians in Tyre and the Christians in Caesarea were behaving like Peter. Uh, Well-intentioned, no doubt, but they were not correct in trying to stop Paul uh, from going to Jerusalem, just like Peter was wrong in trying to stop Jesus from going. Uh, On the other hand, just because it was right for Jesus doesn't mean it was necessarily right for Paul. Uh, The parallelism is interesting, but it's not enough to really say for certain that Paul was correct in going anyways. Uh, Last point to consider here, 
Some would say that the Spirit was simply warning Paul of what was coming, not trying to dissuade him, but prepare him. Uh, Take, for example, the prophecy of Agabus in verse 11. He says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus doesn't tell Paul, don't go. He just says, this is what's going to happen when you get when you get to Jerusalem. And then notice in verse 12, when we heard this, we and all the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So you could say the prophecy was true. Uh, Agabus is warning Paul about what he's about to go through. But the people's reaction was what is what was wrong. So they were inter- they were hearing this and they decided, uh, Paul, you shouldn't go if this is going to be what happens. Uh, here's what John Stott writes about the section about the question of uh, whether Paul was disobeying the Spirit or whether he was right in going. He says the better solution is to draw a distinction between a prediction and a prohibition. Certainly, Agabus only predicted that Paul would be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. The pleadings with Paul which followed are not attributed to the Spirit and may have been the fallible, indeed mistaken, human deduction from the Spirit's prophecy. For if Paul had followed his friend's pleas, then Agabus's prophecy would not have been fulfilled. Uh, on the other hand, the wording of verse 4 is different than those verses. Look, look back at verse 4. It says, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So there it doesn't just say, through the Spirit, they were warning Paul of what was going to happen at Jerusalem. It says, through the Spirit, they were telling him not to go. Uh, The fact that this was a repeated warning all along Paul's journey, and the fact that the text pretty plainly says there that God wasn't just warning Paul of what was coming, but God was trying to tell Paul not to go, leads me to believe that he may have been better to just send the delegates with the offering and stay behind himself. I can't say that for sure, but if you had to ask which way I lean, I think Paul may have been wrong here. I do think this provides some help for us on the difficult subject of discerning God's will in decision-making. And so I want to close by giving you some principles along these lines. You might read through this text and think Paul was correct in going, that he was resolutely following the leading of the Lord despite those who were trying to discourage him. In which case, the lesson would be that sometimes people try to tell us things are God's will and they are wrong. Uh, Well-intentioned people can be wrong. And just because someone is spiritual and godly and they tell you that they really think you ought to be doing something, that doesn't mean that you necessarily should. On the other hand, you might read this text and think that Paul was wrong in going and he was being stubborn and he should have listened, in which case the lesson would be Sometimes we should listen to the counsel of others and not be stubborn with what we think. And so there's a balance there of both, uh, both sides of the ditch. Sometimes you and I are so set in our ways that we're unwilling to really listen and consider if maybe we're just wrong. And maybe what we've determined is what we're supposed to do is actually the opposite of what we're supposed to do. And God has been trying and trying to communicate to us that we are in error and we just don't have ears to hear what he's saying. It's like the guy in the flood when the waters got higher and higher, he ends up on the roof of his house and he's stuck there. Uh, Water all around him and he can't swim, he can't get away. And so he prays to God and he asks God to rescue him from the flood. 
A little while later, a boat comes by and offers to give him a lift, and the man says, no thanks, God is going to rescue me, I'm trusting in the Lord. A little while later, a helicopter flies over, and they drop a ladder down, and he hears the the driver over the speaker saying, you know, grab onto the ladder, we'll bring you to safety. And the man again responds, no thanks, God is going to save me, I'm trusting in him. So the helicopter leaves, and a few hours later, the man drowns. He arrives in heaven, and he's very confused. He says to God, I was trusting in you to save me. What happened? And God says, good grief, man. I sent you a boat and a helicopter. What exactly were you waiting for? Now, that's a silly joke, but there's a kernel of truth in that. Sometimes we're ignoring what God is trying to communicate to us while we're stubbornly convinced that what we are set on doing is correct. And I can't say for sure that that's the case with Paul here, but it's certainly been the case in my own life at times. I've been so determined that something is God's will that I've really not even uh, had any ears to hear anything to the contrary. The third takeaway from the text, I think, is that sometimes it's just hard to know what the right decision is. I think we definitely can take that away from this text. Even us 2,000 years later, uh, reading this in the Bible, it's still difficult to tell uh, whether Paul should have gone or shouldn't have. Somebody was misinterpreting these prophecies. Either Paul was misinterpreting them as warnings to prepare him instead of instructions not to go, or the other people may have been misinterpreting what were merely warnings, and because of their concern for Paul personally, they were wrongly convinced that he should not have gone. But either way, somebody got this wrong. Somebody was misinterpreting what God was trying to say. And that should serve as a warning to us that we shouldn't always have total confidence in our own ability to discern the will of God ahead of time. I've seen some people say very confidently that something is God's will and it's going to work out because God led me to do this. And then it doesn't work out at all. Uh, Be very careful about using that sort of language. I know uh, in recent days a politician uh, that I happen to have known personally was, was going about telling everyone this is God's will, I'm going to win this election because God has led me to do this. And they did not win the election at all. And so sometimes uh, making those sorts of predictions and confidence statements uh, is very foolish. Uh, Don't use the God is leading me to do this as a sort of trump card so that nobody can question your decision. Number four, I think this is another good principle for us. I love how the text ends. Uh, Paul and the people who care for him, they simply disagreed about what to do. They could not come to a conclusion. And so as they see that Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem despite their pleading and begging with him not to go, at the end of it it says, let the will of the Lord be done. At the end of the day, people will sometimes choose something other than what we think they ought to. Or you may be the one uh, making a decision, you're uncertain, but eventually you just have to decide. You have to make a decision one way or the other. And at that point, we must commit our way to the Lord. Do what we think is right and then leave it in his hands. Let the will of the Lord be done. Don't spend your life second-guessing decisions that you made in the past, uh, wondering how your life could have been better or different if you had read the tea leaves differently. Luke stayed with Paul, by the way, all the way until the end of his life. Luke was one of those in this text that was urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem, pleading with him not to go. And then after Paul went anyway, and he was imprisoned and afflicted and sent to Rome, Luke didn't seem to adopt an I told you so attitude. Luke stayed faithful to Paul. He was even imprisoned with Paul. He was a faithful friend. 
Uh, Even when others abandoned Paul at the end of his life, Luke stayed by his side, despite their disagreement about what to do here. So I think that's very instructive for all of us. When we disagree about what God's will is, uh, at a certain point we have to just say, may God's will be done. Lastly, God can use you even if you make a wrong decision. Uh, Many examples of this in Scripture. Think of Jonah. Uh, Jonah certainly made the wrong decision, disobeying God and his will uh, to go to Nineveh. And he went through some extra difficulties that he didn't need to go through as a result of that poor choice. But God still used him. God still gave him a second chance. Uh, Paul was used greatly even after he was imprisoned. He ministers in Rome. Uh, All throughout his imprisonment, he writes some of the books of our Bible while he's in jail. A lot of good came even through this arrest. And no doubt, if Paul had chosen not to go to Jerusalem, God would have used him in different ways. I don't feel like because you messed up at one point along the path of your life, that everything's ruined for you, that you have no future, that you can't be used of God because you made a bad choice. That's a lie that Satan wants you to believe so you'll be ineffective. Instead, look around you and seize whatever opportunities you have now to serve the Lord. At the end of the day, most of God's will isn't supposed to be a mystery. God's will for each of us is largely the same, that we would obey his commands, that we would live holy lives, that we would love others, that we would commit ourselves to a church family. When it comes to difficult decisions, rather than chasing an elusive will of God, I think we'd be better off chasing after wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2 says, My son, If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, his mouth From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. Get wisdom. Seek it out. Learn how to make wise decisions. Instead of looking for some sign in the sky and God to direct every one of your choices, it might be a good idea to start by just learning how to think wisely and make wise decisions. If you want a good place to start with that, I would recommend reading Proverbs. Maybe read it every day. Uh, There happens to be 31 chapters in Proverbs, so many people uh, have the habit of waking up each morning, reading one chapter from the book of Proverbs, whatever day it is. So uh, today is, what, March 19th, I think? Uh, And so you could read Proverbs 19 today, and then tomorrow read Proverbs 20. And if you miss a day, it's no big deal. You just pick up with whatever the date is. I think it's a very good practice, especially if you've not really uh, dived into Proverbs much in the past. It's a book that will teach you principles of wisdom how to think and make decisions that are wise. I want to close by just reading a quote from uh, Kevin DeYoung's book. We have it on the back table there, Just Do Something. It sort of uh, talks more about these subjects, discerning God's will, uh, making decisions that are wise. He says regarding this passage in Proverbs, "So So how do we get this valuable wisdom? 
Our text, speaking of Proverbs 2, mentions three ways. The first way to get wisdom is to store up God's commands. The second way is to turn your ear to wisdom. And the third way is to call out for insight. To put these ways in familiar language, we could say, we get wisdom by reading our Bibles, storing up God's commands, listening to sound advice, turning our ears to wisdom, and praying to God, calling out for insight. At the end of the day, I think that's a good place for us to end this morning, is just to learn how to make wise choices by immersing ourselves in Scripture, studying God's Word, learning to think the way that God thinks, that leads us to making decisions that God would make. 